Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to a special five-part podcast series, Integrity Matters, Exploring the National Defense Authorization Act, sponsored by K2 Integrity. This week, I visit with Chip Ponce, who is the global co-head of the K2 Integrity Financial Crimes Risk Management Practice and a member of K2 Integrity's board. He co-founded the Financial Integrity Network in 2014, which merged with K2 Intelligence in 2019. The combined firm announced its new name, K2 Integrity, in November 2020. From 2002 to 2013, Chip served as the inaugural director of the Office of Strategic Policy for Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes and a senior advisor at the U.S. Department of Treasury. Prior to K2 Integrity, Chip also served as HSBC's Interim Head of Financial Crimes Compliance for Mexico and the Latin American region, assisting in the development and implementation of an enterprise-wide financial crimes compliance program adherent to global standards. I'm also joined by Gail Fuller. Gail is a Managing Director at K2 Integrity. She leads the teams, providing advisory support to a wide variety of clients, including foreign governments, financial institutions, and fintech firms, helping them navigate the complex challenges relating to compliance with anti-money laundering, combating the financing of terrorism regulations, U.S. and international sanctions, and bribery and anti-corruption laws. Gail spent nearly eight years with the U.S. federal government focused on combating illicit finance. Over this five-part series, we will break down the changes to the Bank Secrecy Act and changes in enforcement to authority to the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN, which are found in the recently passed National Defense Authorization Act. Topics include breaking down the big picture, company formation reform, new opportunities under this new law, coming changes to corporate governance under the NDAA, and taking the long view of the new law. This is one of the most significant new laws around banks, bank secrecy in nearly 20 years. They will apply to financial institutions and a wide variety of others going forward. In this first episode, I'm joined by Chip Pouncey to take a big picture look at this new law. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and we are starting our five-part series on the new uh, NDAA or the National Defense Authorization Act and how it's going to, I think, radically change our uh, enforcement and compliance around um, bank secrecy, money laundering, and financial crimes. Uh, today, I'm joined by Chip Ponce. Chip, uh, first of all, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. Tom, pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for for having me and for your interest in, in what we're going to talk about, AML reform. Well, I've been following this uh, this bill for, for the full year. I've been uh, trying to do my best to change the ABA's position on shell corporations for years. So uh, I was finally glad to get this uh, uh, at least uh, passed by Congress. What, uh, Chip, do you see on kind of a big picture uh, view? What are the key provisions from your perspective? Well, thanks, Tom. It's funny you mentioned the ABA because there are two of them, right? And, <laughs> and and this goes this goes way back in terms of um, the issues that that this uh, particular legislation um, addresses. There are uh, there are a, a, a broad range of areas of AML reform covered by this by this act, and I'm excited to talk about them um, all day. I know we well, time's always the enemy, 
Um, one area of, of key interest is one that you just pointed to, which is how do we deal with the use of anonymous companies by uh, illicit actors to gain access to our financial system? And um, we have been debating for decades uh, a company formation process that we need to reform so that we can better understand who owns the companies that we create in the United States. And that's a big part of the act. We'll talk more about that, I know, in a, in a later segment. But there are other areas of, of, um, of real interest here that really get to the, the, the heart of what our AML regime does and what it's become. And, and to understand that, you have to take a step back. I think, and, and look at the evolution of AML over the past 20 years. After 9-11, we as a country recognized the value of financial information and financial disruption to terrorist organizations in particular, but really a, a broad threat of threats to our national security. And based on that recognition, we strengthened, we expanded um, substantially the Bank Secrecy Act through implementation of the Patriot Act, the USA Patriot Act. And that took us several years. And what it did is it, it, it broadened um, the Bank Secrecy Act to cover uh, most segments of our financial system. It strengthened what, what was expected from each of those segments in the form of AML programs and um, reporting and record keeping requirements. And um, in doing that, it created a, a different degree of transparency that would allow us to identify, track, trace, and disrupt all forms of illicit actors in our financial system. Um, that premise of the AML regime as a foundation for protecting our, our financial system and our national security um, was never recognized as a matter of law and, and has been debated in, in part as a matter of policy. Uh, no more. Because when you look at this act, to, to me, the most important starting point is looking at the very purpose of the Bank Secrecy Act, which um, in, in this act has been amended and, and substantially expanded to include protecting uh, the integrity of our financial system and uh, safeguarding our national security. So that that alone is is a huge step forward in helping um, everyone from uh, the public sector, the private sector, to to really Main Street um, understand why this is so important. Uh, because at the end of the day, this is an act that um, is designed now to protect um, the integrity of our financial system, national security, in ways that um, has not been have not been recognized in the past. So that's a great starting point. So uh, you mentioned a significant expansion of the Bank Secrecy Act. Could you tell us some of the uh, expansion or changes that you see as the most significant? Sure. So we mentioned company formation reform. Um, to, to me, what, what might be most important is the requirement for additional information reporting and information sharing that would inform implementation of a risk-based approach. This has been at the heart of debate uh, around implementation challenges to the Bank Secrecy Act now for the past 20 years. Uh, the U.S. Um, system of governance with respect to the Bank Secrecy Act, um, as in uh, most areas of governance in the financial system, relies on a risk-based approach in which financial institutions really are responsible for understanding um, and managing risks associated with money laundering and illicit finance on a continuous basis. And they are judged um, in terms of the effectiveness of those, of those uh, meeting those requirements by examiners, regulators, and law enforcement on a, on a continual basis. That's hard to do if you're operating with different types of information, with different kinds of expectations, uh, in a highly dynamic and evolving financial system and threat environment. Uh, to me, one of the biggest areas of, of, um, of uh, benefit with the new act is, is a host of new reporting requirements and information sharing 
that allows um, our financial system, our financial institutions, our regulators and law enforcement to better understand what a risk-based approach actually means in terms of the risks that we worry about and the prioritization of those risks, um, how those risks are covered and translated into examination and supervision um, expectations, and then uh, ultimately how those priorities and, and risks are informing AML programs that are implemented by our financial institutions. So that alignment is really important. And there's a lot of reporting required under this act um, from uh, the law enforcement community and the attorney general, from the treasury department and the federal functional regulators um, in order to, to create a better understanding of what risk looks like and what regulatory expectations um, associated with managing those risks look like. Chip, together with the expansion of the Bank Secrecy Act, it's also an expansion of FinCEN's enforcement powers. And uh, as much as I, in the private sector, want to see obligations on corporations uh, expanded to help uh, fight many of these scourges, uh, you can't do that without increased enforcement and more robust enforcement. And what powers do you see FinCEN uh, not only needed, but got in this uh, new NDAA? Well, thanks, Tom. FinCEN is definitely a beneficiary of this new act. They have additional authorities, but they also have uh, additional um, accountability under under the act, um, much of which uh, gets to work that FinCEN has done historically and strengthens and codifies some of their pre-existing work and then expands upon it. Um, there are different areas that we could point to. I think um, just looking at the statute itself, FinCEN Exchange is an initiative that FinCEN has launched to try to uh, provoke greater public-private sector information sharing around um, risk and around controls to manage those risks, including through the use of new technologies. That is now codified um, in the Act and requires um, uh, reporting to Congress about the work done in, in the context of that initiative. There are statutory requirements for FinCEN to establish liaisons, both domestically with federal functional regulators and um, internationally with uh, counterpart for, uh, financial intelligence units and other financial centers. Um, that is work that I know FinCEN has, has done historically to strengthen relationships domestically and abroad. But again, codifying that and requiring uh, resourcing and reporting around that will strengthen those efforts from FinCEN. There are efforts to um, codify some of the threat reporting that FinCEN has done historically, and that includes the SAR activity review reports that are now required on at least a semi-annual basis um, from FinCEN, and then a series of reviews of the utility of Bank Secrecy Act data um, that will um, help FinCEN rationalize um, what reporting requirements it is, uh, it is focused on and help the industry understand um, which information is most valuable to protecting um, our financial system, safeguard our national security, and assisting law enforcement. So these are just areas, uh, just at, at a wave, that are covered in, in the uh, new legislation, other provisions as well. Chip, one of the reasons I'm so excited about this law is um, I, I work typically in uh, anti-corruption compliance, and I see the obligations and the responsibilities enacted under this law as hugely important and even applicable to different types of compliance. So trade sanction compliance, uh, export control compliance, anti-corruption compliance, import compliance. And uh, what I see is, um, and shell companies are the one that, that I have to worry about the most. So that's foremost on my mind. But it seems to me 
there are some, you've talked about risk management and uh, utilization of risk management techniques to help more finely tune your compliance program. What are some of the things that uh, financial institutions and even private uh, companies or public companies could do now to prepare for the enactment of this law? Thanks, Tom. And and uh, as crazy as it sounds, you know, we talked about the risk-based approach and how our, our system of governance of the Bank Secrecy Act is really grounded in a risk-based approach. And yet um, uh, we don't, we haven't um, specifically required our financial institutions to conduct risk assessments um, as a matter of law. It, it, it has been an expectation of regulators for several years. And, and as regulatory guidance has said for several years, if a financial institution does not do a risk assessment, the regulators will do one for you. And you're probably going to wish that you had done it yourself. Um, that's, <laughs> that said, it is now going to be a requirement to conduct these risk assessments on an institutional basis. That's not news for financial institutions, but in moving forward, as those risk assessments are conducted, there will be more external information to help inform um, and align what risks financial institutions should be looking for based on expectations from law enforcement and the national security community. Um, what's important for institutions to understand is that that external data <clears throat> is an important component of conducting a risk assessment, but <clears throat> what makes your risk assessment yours is that it, it needs to also be informed by what you do for a living as an institution. So what kinds of customers, products, services, and markets you have um, in your business? And you know that, that, that exposes in many ways some of the challenges that, that this act or any act can't really address and is, and is part of the, 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 the benefit and also the challenge of a risk-based approach. At the end of the day, the financial institutions in a privatized financial system like ours, really, they have to own this risk. And they need help, for sure, in understanding what law enforcement and others are seeing as the primary threats. Um, but they need to connect dots as to how those threats may be manifest in the businesses that they run. And that just requires a lot of connective tissue. So I think um, as a financial institution, you will have more external information now to consider uh, around what law enforcement and regulators are seeing as priority threats and vulnerabilities. And that will give you a little bit of a better compass in how to, um, how to assess the internal data that you have about your business and how that internal data may um, may, may, may represent um, vulnerabilities or risks associated with what law enforcement and regulators are looking at. So I think that additional information externally is going to help align expectations and help financial institutions conduct the risk assessments that then have, have a knock-on effect um, as to their, their programs to manage the risks that those assessments um, uncover. Chip, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on any of the topics we've covered today. Uh, where can they go? Oh, fantastic. Thanks, Tom. There's, uh, there's never enough time to talk about these issues, but the good news is we've got a lot of resources available for those that are interested. Our website, www.k2integrity.com, is a great place to go to start. You'll see on that website an invitation, among other things, to join Dolphin, our dedicated online financial integrity network, which is a platform that we have created to house um, uh, a, a growing expanse of resources, training materials, and relationships that you can build as a, as a participant to um, better understand and manage risks associated with combating illicit finance. So um, I would start at K2 Integrity, work your way to Dolphin, and from there you will have um, endless hours of reading and entertainment. Chip, thanks so much for taking the time to visit with me today. I greatly look forward to continuing the conversation. Tom, thanks so much for having me. 
Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Integrity Matters, exploring the National Defense Authorization Act. I hope you'll join us again tomorrow for another episode. Please check out the great resources provided by K2 Integrity, which are listed on the show notes, their website, and the new Dolphin site. This special five-part podcast series is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network, sponsored by K2 Integrity.